Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Chad Harrell. Uh, Gentry texted me actually about the opportunity to come and teach Sunday school this morning. Uh, so here I am. <laughs> uh, appreciate you all being here and bearing with me while I work through what I've got prepared here. Uh, so we're going to be going into chapter three of uh, the book on conscience. But before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and lead us off with a word of prayer. So if I could bow their heads. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have, uh, both for where we live and, and just in the freedom that you give us, um, that we can come and worship you together, that we can learn more about you and how we can uh, align our conscience with you, um, what role it plays in, in our lives as uh, gospel-believing image bearers that, that we get to go out and um, Try to be lights in this world, people who bring you to the gospel, or bring people to you, God. Um, thank you that we have this word and, and, and the wisdom and insights uh, to study. Um, I pray that you would help us absorb what you would have us learn today uh, and actually and apply it in action as a family uh, with accountability toward one another uh, and, and in a way that impacts our life long term and our, our walk with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, I did get a chance to listen to Dr. Crump's uh, walk through chapter two last week, so just kind of in summary of where that left off in terms of conscience. Um, we define conscience as the awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. So it's your awareness of what you have belief in. Um, and as Dr. Crump highlighted last week, the authors blessedly give us the biblical answers to, to questions that they, they pose in this book. Uh, pretty early and often. Um, so for chapter three, we have the question that leads everything off of what should you do when your conscience condemns you? Um, so the answer that they give fairly immediately, and you'll see is, is present throughout this uh, relatively short chapter, is that you should turn to Christ. So um, we had last week uh, 30 New Testament uses of the word conscience and the context surrounding those verses gives us some frame for, framework for how we'll shape our conscience to match uh, what Christ would have us believe about what is right and wrong and then act on. And a summary outline of this chapter is it opens with that question and the drive is what our response to that con condemnation of conscience is. As the previous chapter highlighted, no two people will have the exact same conscience uh, but our response to feeling the weight and pull of our own conscience is shaped by how we view God. The authors mentioned right off the bat that if you rightly understand how holy God is and how sinful you are, your conscience will rightly condemn you when you sin against God. Like everyone else, you fall short of the glory of God and your conscience monitors your sin and testifies in ugly detail when we have sinned. And your guilty conscience is a barrier between you and God. This can make you despair, which they have a complete section about uh, that we'll get to in just a minute. But uh, it can make you despair, or it can lead you to passionate praise of the gospel. The Bible proclaims the good news of a clean conscience for both the lost and the saved. So moving into a section that they have for a clean conscience for the lost. Um, they reference a lot of different verses, so I'm going to try to also pull those in and, and reference those as well. But this section 
really highlights the wonder of having a clear conscience as a draw of the gospel. It's not something I personally do enough when talking to unsaved friends and family or just in approaching my own conscience. Uh, It's to think about how wonderful a gift it is to have a clear conscience. Uh, I don't know about you all, but at least for me, it's, it's very easy to have the weight of conscience uh, failures, shortcomings, our sin can waste in a, such a subtle way that it's a weight you may not always be aware of that you're constantly carrying. Uh, I think part of that lack of acknowledging how wonderful a clear conscience can be is in part my own discomfort bringing up matters of the soul and conscience with myself or with others. Um, but since we have all fallen short, while it would take having a a good relationship with someone and a healthy amount of vulnerability with that person to bring it up, everyone would be able to understand the appeal of a clean conscience because every one of us has experienced that, uh, that guilt and that burden. So um, in, this, in this section here, uh, J.D. Uh, Crowler lives in Cambodia and ministers to people there. And while I don't believe any of us uh, are on a regular basis in contact with people who have uh, committed the same physical and earthly sins uh, and the consequences that come with those as the people he describes in this, in this part of the chapter. Every sin in God's eyes is equally condemning uh, in, in a separation from us and his perfect will for us. You know? uh, so putting that in perspective and even though acknowledging that we haven't all experienced or, or conducted the same sins with earthly, earthly consequences as the people here the response to that condemnation is still the same. And it is this word, that God so loved the world that he gave his one son and only son to redeem us, all those who trust in Christ. God forgives and covers all of our sins, and he never counts that sin against him for all eternity because he counted that sin against Christ instead. Only this message can comfort a non-Christian's guilt-wracked conscience. And obviously that applies to Christians as well. Um, as a personal anecdote on thinking about a clean conscience and how that kind of relates to our witness, uh, when I was in school, I had a lot of friends who uh, were Catholic growing up, and at some point in their lives, uh, their parents decided, we're not going to go to church anymore. Um, it, but what that left them with was some understanding of moral behaviors and goodness, uh, that came just from being Catholic and uh, not really a, an understanding of where your conscience fills in and, and can be influenced by and should be driven by biblical truth. Um, so what I found really interesting talking to Catholic friends of mine was they, they were not so opposed to the idea of there being an, an almighty, of there being a God and of having a savior. But what, what really frustrated them and actually dissuaded them from pursuing God further were questions they had of how we could deal with basically constantly being told by church and and the Bible the only message they received was you are not good enough and you never will be and they actually, they viewed that as discouraging Uh, as I'm sure people who, again, they, they comment on all the atrocious sins that are committed by some of these people in Cambodia and that we're all capable of because of our sin nature, um, that the weight of that burden 
can so quickly be translated and turned into a lie that, that Satan tells us, which is, you, how dare you believe you could even come back to redemption? You know, uh, how dare you believe you, you are deserving of grace and mercy from God? Um, so I found it interesting talking to who at, at the time was my best friend uh, at school um, about conscience, and we had just come out of a sermon where they, they had highlighted, he attended church with me there, uh, they had highlighted that, hey, you, you're never, you will never be able to work yourself out of your sinful nature by yourself. You need Christ. But what he heard from that was, why should I even try or why bother if I'm always going to feel guilty and be guilty? What he missed was that key switching point of realizing that guilt on the conscience, I would, I would like to refer to as worldly guilt versus biblical repentance. And he missed that key part of the message. And without that key part, it is very understandable how the people that J.D. Crowler is, is ministering to in Cambodia, or ourselves, if we take seriously our own sin, could think that we are in any way deserving of, of being able to come to God. Because it's still focused on our own works, reaching a point that we can clear our own conscience. So what an amazing and wonderful gift to be able to, to lead off with if people ask about our, our faith, why we believe, and what we believe, to highlight that, that point that they make, which is, hey, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to redeem all those who trust in Christ and give you a clear conscience for all eternity, not because you earned it by fixing your behaviors, but because that condemnation you feel is evidence of our separation from God, something that we can use to draw us more and closer to God. Um, so that's why having, without having to convince someone of their guilt, since we can safely assume everyone has felt it, we can highlight how the gospel is so much more than a simple listing of good behaviors and rules to follow. As they point out in this chapter, after listing all the atrocious sins that were committed, one of the greatest hopes we can highlight for one another is John 3.16. It's probably the best-known verse when you think about it. Uh, and in the context of the constant weight and despair that people can feel on their conscience, that seemingly overused verse, which we know there's no, there's no way you can overuse a, a Bible verse uh, if used correctly, is such powerful freedom. Uh, I really enjoyed reading that and being challenged to myself, thinking, how often do I basically allow the gospel to stand on its own merit of giving someone the, the ability to experience a clean conscience as a literal, a selfish draw, if you will, to why would you not want to refuse this, this gift? Why would you not want to hear what I have to say about a gospel that's provided by someone who can give you a clean conscience that you know we all have experienced through our own lives? You can't work yourself, too. Uh, there, there's no amount of burying it or ignoring your guilty conscience that will actually make it go away. Um, so just thought that was a really, really powerful statement of saying a clean conscience for those who are lost is a gift that people who are honest with themselves when they reach that point of vulnerability can be one of the most powerful tools for bringing them to the gospel and opening their, their eyes and hearts to the reality of the good news. From there, uh, they go to a section really interesting called the supercharged conscience of a Christian. Um, I, just as a note, I'm a 
self-proclaimed very proud mantle wearer of a nerd. So I'm going to use some references potentially that, you know, <laughs> if, if you're wondering where they came from, that's, that's why. But uh, I, I just I loved even the terminology of a supercharged conscience um, of a Christian. So uh, in this section, they, they go through highlighting, okay, so you've come to receive Christ. Say you're at that point. We're, we're Christ followers, you know. Uh, does your conscience now fall silent? Have you already reached the point where, unlike the guilt that was experienced by people in Cambodia or any, any and all sinners who are lost at the time, what happens to your conscience when you become a Christian? Far be it from going silent, it should be all the more active. And what drives that activeness? Um, they've got a great quote here. So, if I'm making progress toward holiness with the help of the Holy Spirit, why do I keep feeling like I'm a worse sinner than before? You may ask yourself this question, especially, I, I know I certainly have. Um, probably the greatest example in my life of this supercharged conscience of a Christian that I would attribute to is my, my mother. Um, she has continued to grow, and it's been a blessing to me to see, while she is still in the role of my mother as a sister in Christ, the older she has gotten and faithfully walked with, walked with Christ, I've seen how much her life has continued to transform without ever becoming, I have become a better person. It's always been, good, how great is God that I am still learning to be better, that I am still achieving more. But back to the chapter at hand, they're really trying to highlight something we've probably all experienced, which is, uh, the, the guilty portion of it, the part that feels like, okay, now that I've been supercharged by being a Christian and I have consciousness that is informed by the Bible and my knowledge that I'm a sinner in need of salvation, what, do you, what does that look like as a Christian? Uh, if you don't have the book, one of the things I think they, they highlighted and I've really, really enjoyed is a figure that they have in here um, depicting the difference between our knowledge of God's good and what his laws are and our obedience to God and his laws. So, uh, for those of you who can visually see me, I, I love the idea of, they've got an angle that they've created, and if you've got, your obedience is relatively flat, and you've got at some you know, angle above that, our knowledge of God and his laws. The further out I go with my arms, or if I started using something even farther, that gap between the two points continues to grow. And the subtle bit that they added that I really enjoy because it's just a visual representation of what we already know, which is that gap between how well we are able to obey God's word and our knowledge of what God's word has us, would have us do, that gap continues to grow, but they've filled that gap with a cross. And that cross, as you project these lines, will keep getting larger and larger and larger. And really that comes back to, and what I want to do to be faithful to the text here too, is continue to point back to the answer they gave right off the bat of what do you do when your conscience is condemning you? You turn to Christ. So with the example of that cross continuing to get larger and larger as, as time and faithful walking with Christ goes on, your literal image, your, your impression, your view, your stance on God should all increase. Because his sacrifice and the fact that you need him, that knowledge should continue to grow. Um, one of the things for accountability, that, just a note that I made reading this section, um, bringing back in the nerdiness that I have, 
there's, there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this applies to psychology all across, but it's interesting how well we can apply it to our spiritual lives as well. What that is, in very brief terms, is you actually have a U-shaped curve. So you start at a high point when you're closest to the axes, and it goes, it dips down, and then comes back up. And what that is an example of is they've actually plotted out people's response to when they're approached with a topic that your, 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 the curve is based on basically how well do you know that topic, how well do you understand that subject, and what is your confidence that you understand the subject. So much like consciousness is your awareness of what you believe, this simple, in a similar fashion, if you were to talk about mathematics or science or any, any you know, t- typical school subject, what you would find is people who are novices, so we would say basically perhaps a new Christian or someone who's not even a believer, may have high confidence that they understand conscience and right and wrong, where, while their actual knowledge of it is relatively limited. But why the curve dips in the Dunning-Kruger effect is because the more you learn about how a subject, the more you are able to acknowledge what you don't know. Uh, and I just I think that's a beautiful representation for me uh, with that the gap and the ever expanding need for acknowledgement of Christ's sacrifice and that He is the only solution to that question of dealing with a guilty conscience. That expansion of trusting and knowing you you do not have the the ability to solve your guilty conscience yourself is is something that should continue to grow even as you as you gain more knowledge. It makes sense that that would continue to increase your required reliance on Christ. So, they highlight in this section that we shouldn't expect that the struggle of dealing with the guilty conscience of our awareness of our own sins should decrease. In fact, we should expect that struggle to continue. Much like it says in the scriptures about running a race, I don't imagine your legs feel a whole lot refreshed when you're on mile 26 of a marathon. You know, it, it, that, that run, that race that we are called to persevere in continues to get harder. But the blessing, going into the next section of a, a clean conscience for the saved, is found in the answer, which is deceptively simple, but very hard to put into practice. What do you do when you get fatigued trying to deal with your now awareness as a Christian of sin? What should you do with that? Well, they say only an ever-increasing trust in Christ's work on the cross can fill this ever-widening gap and keep us from despair, which is, of course, a negative consequence of consciousness, not something that drives us to positive repentance. So only an ever-increasing trust in Christ's work on the cross can fill this ever-widening gap. Um, I had a scripture that that these passages made me think of uh, and I'm going to go ahead and flip to that real quick. So in John 14, what, what is referenced here is the supercharged conscience of a Christian comes not from just our acknowledgement uh, that we needed a Savior and we have come to accept Christ. It actually comes from the influence of the Holy Spirit, God's great gift to those who believe in him. So I wanted to turn to a passage where basically Christ comforted and promised us that Holy Spirit. 
And you look in John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I found that extremely comforting in the discussion of conscience to remind us that even our knowledge of what is right and wrong, the things that shape when we know we have sinned against God, that's not from us either. That is still something we have relied on God to provide. So, for a clean conscience for the saved, and uh, kind of as a, another um, comfort, because this, this whole chapter is, is, really, is about the condemnation of your conscience, but as a way to bring it back to something positive and recall that the, the end goal here is still Christ-like, is for us to grow in our behavior toward being righteous in the way God would call us to be, is as that that gap increases between what Christ would have us do, what our conscience uh, directs us toward, and our knowledge of what we should be doing grows, that can lead to despair. And you see it in some of the biggest names of the Bible. You know, uh, So they highlighted that Paul himself increasingly realized his sinfulness. He referred to himself as, quote, the least of the apostles, in 1 Corinthians, then the very least of all the saints in Ephesians, and finally, the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy. If you're feeling like that, and as you can see also in in Romans 7, when he writes, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, and, and I agree that law is good. So he knows what the law is, but can't bring himself to, to do it. And that can, that can cause guilt, and that can cause despair. But then we return to the answer that has been present in this chapter, which is, you turn to Jesus. So, in highlighting what happens when we turn to Jesus for our conscience, God's solution for us is to have a clean conscience throughout our lives, and that is by... 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They highlight something interesting here. The sentences before and after this solution capture the world's solutions for a defiled conscience, namely to either deny that we have any sin at all or to defend our sin. These solutions are popular in secular culture. It's something we embrace constantly in our struggle to, to fight to be more Christ-like. But notice something surprising about the wording of 1 John. The authors point out, if we confess our sins, God is kind and merciful. That is not what, they, what the verse says. Instead, he says, God is faithful and just. If you've just confessed to a crime as we do when we repent and when we come to God and actually confess our sins, as we are called to do from the verse, they point out in our human understanding, we, we often like to turn to the, the grace giver 
rather than understanding God and his role as being faithful and just, which he always is. You don't want to hear that necessarily when you're facing potential punishment or when you're feeling the weight on your conscience of guilt. But he goes on to clarify why he used that phrasing, and it's something that he highlights in the next few verses. When you read ahead just a couple sentences, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside the justly deserved wrath of God and completely satisfies the calling, the the character of Christ, which is righteous and just. So, for us Christians, Christ is our propitiation. That means all that guilt that you're feeling, the, the despair that may come from seeing that growing gap of when we are aware of our sin and we are trying to correct it, that despair needs to be turned into an action. That action, blessedly, is as simple as acknowledging you can take no action in your own power to correct this. You must turn to Christ. So right in the center of the, the chapter, on page 50, they, I, I think this is kind of the summary, the hinge point uh, in their answer to what you do with a conscience that is condemning you. When your conscience condemns you, they say, go boldly before God's throne of grace so that you may find his mercy and grace. In the Hebrews, it's written, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We've all obviously sung that hymn and we all know that that hymn very well. Um, I, I do find it comforting that coming straight from scripture knowing this is God's answer to that question. What can wash away my sin and with it the guilt on conscience of that sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So reading this, and I think to some extent I, have to give, I had the advantage, thanks to Gentry, of being called upon to prepare for this. Something about that extra effort when I'm reading this and extra attentiveness in reading this and trying to, to come up and and summarize, but, but also share my perspective from reading this, was that the additional attentiveness I gave this really did make me question how well I understand and apply this simple principle and yet deeply profound concept that nothing I do will clear a guilty conscience. That it is nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we have this knowledge, and, and we all share in that, uh, thank God, as Christians. But that doesn't mean that we aren't human and fallible. So they go on to address that. When conscience tempts you to despair. It can be deceptively difficult when I was reading this to even believe in moments of despair that we can turn to God. It seems counterintuitive, since we all... at least from a head knowledge perspective, know his law and know his word enough to know we can't solve ourselves. We cannot rid ourselves of a guilty conscience. But 
having experienced this as, as any, I believe, human has, in moments of despair like that, where you've messed up so badly you can, that they can say that even if an earthly consequence isn't coming, even if the law of the land isn't going to punish you directly for it, your spiritual understanding that you've broken a command of, of God giving you guilt for that, when you have that despair, it can be very hard to bring yourself back mentally to the point of realizing while I am the one experiencing this guilt and am responsible for my actions, I am not responsible for being the one to fix this. Not first and not through my power. I have to turn to Jesus. Because we had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, Hebrews says, God's word repeatedly promises that Jesus can cleanse your conscience so, so that you can draw near to God. That gap that we feel in our conscience that between us and God that may make it seem like we cannot at this point draw near to God and, and pull on his power is the very reason we must turn to Christ because we can't close that gap in our own power. But Jesus can. Our ability to recognize our sin and turn to the only solution for growth toward obedience in God and closing that gap is completely dependent on our trust in God's placement and priority and understanding in our lives. I thought it was really interesting to tie that line for myself and for my own edification moving forward to remember even something like a guilty conscience is actually tied to how big is God in your life? How active is he in your life? If you have a small view of God, if you do not trust him with the promises he gives in the, in the word, how can you be expected to turn to him in times of most desperate need for even the things that are feel so personal, deep, and, and emotional as a conscience, which you cannot share fully with anyone. You can never lay out in our lives, in the perfect words, what you experience in your, in your head as your conscience. That is only you and God can know that. So I offer this encouragement and request for help, certainly from my wife, but also as a church body, that when we rightly choose to repent, which involves confession, which involves facing sin and, and acknowledgement that we have, we have strayed from God's perfect path, as we always do, that rather than try to scramble back and certainly not to ignore it, we can go find comfort in the fact that even the act of turning back to God is something God has to empower. That it's his grace that allows us to do that. So, the final section here, um, after dealing with, okay, what happens when conscience tempts you to despair, and we come back to realizing only the cross can fill that gap, and it's only returning to a fundamental truth of our salvation, which is through Christ alone. 
he comes to a very interesting section and, and uh, pulls out a scene from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which I haven't read in, in, in some time. I remember having it read to me as a, as a kid, and I think a lot of it went over my head at the time, to be honest. Um, but he has a face-off with a character, Apollyon. I'm assuming I'm saying that right. After Apollyon accurately accuses Christian, the character, of a series of sins who we can all relate to, Christian basically replies, you're right, and I'm actually even worse than that. So that disarming statement sets up the death blow. And I'm going to read just a, a, a portion of that excerpt because I, I really enjoyed it. So this is Christian's response to the accusation of how many different things and times we have failed. He says, All of this is true. All these failures you say, they are true. And much more that you have failed to mention. But the prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country, the world, for while, while there, I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them, have been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon for my prince. The groaning under, that, that word choice specifically, I think it really, really struck me. Groaning under the weight of a guilty conscience. Uh, it's, it's something, again, I, it's, it's impossible to describe to someone else trust that everyone has experienced. And so, reading that, this is where I'm going to, phrasing, kind of reframing this for myself, and here is where I would obviously encourage you to reframe this in, in a way that you can directly apply to your life. But being the nerd that I am, I like to think of this as preferring to be on a quest with God against sin, So being on a quest with God against sin in our lives. That requires an active conscience and stance. Like from last week's descending levels of damage for your will, a seared conscience is not likely going to make enough noise to register an opportunity for us to address sin. And when I say it requires an active stance to be on a quest with God, to root out sin in our lives, to to try to close that gap, out of love and honor for God, not because we want to have good works checked off in a box, but because we want to honor God, that active stance does not need to be depressing or energy draining, which is the lie that Satan, that Satan gives that I gladly bite on pretty frequently. I have career quests. I have home improvement goals. I have rest and relaxation plans. But those are often based on effort that I put into them things that I actively pursue. Not so with our conscience, as this chapter and the verses have pointed out. We can actively recall who bore that that burden already. We know who it is. The answer is turn to Christ. Trying to redo the gospel-level work of getting right with God, but trying to commit less sin in our own power, is antithetical to the being of being a Christ follower, to being a Christian. A Christian like the one from Pilgrim's Progress passage. If we want to find relief 
and not only that, but actual growth in our obedience when faced with the guilty conscience, we have to remember one step that always starts that process is to turn to Christ. Now, that's all I had for this chapter um, as far as notes. So what I'd like to do now is offer an opportunity for any prayer requests or honestly comments, things to share from, from your reading of this, of this passage and its application through the scripture to our lives. Recalling, that, of course, that highlighting that the gospel is the good news that can grant a clean conscience. And that should give us so much joy and so much wonder at the, even the possibility of, a, of walking through life with a clear conscience that it should affect our daily lives and our, and our ministry efforts to friends and family around us. You can leave with that and trust that God will take the wheel from there. We don't have to be the ones with all the answers, uh, and we certainly don't have to be the one driving toward our own cleaner conscience. It's something that we can rely on, on God and his strength to do.